Well, uh, by way of recap, we've been going through the life of Joseph, and where we left him last Sunday, if you're in case you're not familiar or you just need a refresher on the life of Joseph, one of the patriarchs of Israel, um, great-grandson of Abraham, the father of Israel. What we saw in Genesis last Sunday was Joseph suffered the ultimate injustice. Uh, his, his brothers were envious of him, and they actually sold him into slavery. And he was taken by a foreign caravan, the Ishmaelites, into Egypt to become a slave there. Okay, so he's this young Hebrew, 17 years old. He's been trafficked, okay, taken into Egypt as a slave. But we saw last week, over and over, it says God was with him. That phrase is repeated several times. But God was with him. God was with him. And so God, this was no surprise to God. All along, God knew this was going to happen to Joseph. And actually, it was part of God's plan um, because God had some preparation in Joseph that needed to be done because God knew where he needed Joseph in the future. He was going to raise him up to, to a very high and powerful position, but he wasn't ready yet. And that's really our story. It's really our story. God has a divine plan and purpose for each one of us. Probably, I'd say most likely something beyond our wildest dreams in many cases. And, and not that it's not that it would be glamorous or, or well-known or very public, but it's a meaningful purpose because your life will finally have meaning when you are fulfilling God's purpose for you and not your purpose or someone else's purpose for you. Okay, so that's the goal is, God, here I am. Take me and use me however you will, but fix me first. Prepare me. And that's what's going on with Joseph. So he entered into this prison, which he didn't know at the time, but it was his character formation. It was for his good. It was, you know what? We pay thousands of dollars, unless you get a bailout, for college, right? And I, I, I was at Cornell. I love going to Cornell. It's my happy place. And every time I'm there, I'm just, I, I, I thought the other day, I, I, if, I could, if I didn't need sleep, and if I, you know, if I had an extra life to do some things with, I would go, probably go back to school. Uh, you know? But the thing is, here's the thing. We spend so much money on educating ourselves in knowledge, all kinds of knowledge, to become experts in all kinds of things. But there's not a major that is called character. Like, nobody does that. <laughs> Nobody works really hard and gets a scholarship to go study character development so they can get a Ph.D. in character. And yet that's God's goal. That is God's goal for you and me, that we would become Christ-like in our character. That is a successful human being, to have a Ph.D., as it were, in character, in Christ-like character, a, P a doctorate in humility, in meekness, in forgiveness, in unconditional love. And you know what? We can't do that on our own. Hence, God. I don't know about you. I've tried to love unconditionally, and the harder I try, man. <laughs> Has anybody been successful at loving someone unconditionally? 
I'd like to have your autograph. Start calling you Jesus. <laughs> okay, so it says in um, Psalm 119, uh, now let's go back to, let's go to Genesis now. Let's pick up where we were, where we left off in Genesis. Um, we left him at the end that he had just been deposited into prison. And so uh, chapter 40. And one thing we talked about um, last week, one of the points of last week's sermon was that Joseph didn't get into prison and just fall apart and say, well, I guess I'm a prisoner now, so I can't do anything with my life. I guess God can't use me. I don't know why sometimes this is a problem and other times it's not. But we saw last night but that God can still use you. You can still be highly effective, if not more effective, in your calling while you are in some kind of figurative confinement in your life. Actually, that prison of yours can make you, if you let it, very effective in, your call, in the call of God on your life. You can find yourself speaking and being and doing and acting and behaving and believing and thinking more like God intends for you to be while you're in your prison for all kinds of reasons. You know, one, you can relate to people. You can feel what they feel. You can say, hey, I'm there. I got you. And that's what Jesus did. He came and entered our prison, this earth with all its constraints. He left heaven to do that for us. And so he fulfilled his calling in his prison. And so Joseph is symbolic. He's kind of a prototype of Jesus. So in Genesis chapter 40, I'm starting in verse 1. Uh, it says it came to So Joseph has been thrown in prison. And it says that the keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority. This is 39 verse 23. Because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. So the keeper of the prison put jo Joseph in charge, just like what had happened in the palace in Egypt. Here he is again because God trusts him because he's been faithful to God. The, the keeper of the prison now, he's putting Joseph in charge of everyone in the prison, or at least in his section of the prison. So verse Chapter 40, verse 1 says, It came to pass, after these things, that the butler and the baker, sounds like we're going to have a nursery rhyme, the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. So the butler would be, uh, he's the person who serves the wine to the king. You know, he's a, he's a butler. He, he's, he, he does services to the king and these domestic matters. And then the baker, of course, is the baker. And I haven't studied this out. It's very possible that Joseph had known them, had worked with them, right? Had known them personally. So here, somehow, they've offended their lord, the king of Egypt. So Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the baker. And he puts them in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. Verse 4. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them. And he served them. So they were in custody for a while. So Joseph is in charge of these guys, this butler and the baker, and he's serving them as a good leader would do. And verse 5 says, Then the butler and the baker, who were confined in the prison, had a dream, both of them, each man's dream in one night and each man's dream with its own interpretation. 
verse 6, says, Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. Hebrew, more correct transliteration is rejected. So he's, he's, he's being responsible. He's not just in a corner having a pity party. He's actually, while he's a prisoner, checking on his guys. He's still serving. He's still looking after them in his own pain. He's still being a, a caretaker of those that God has placed in his care. There's a whole lesson right there. I believe it's because he relied on the strength of God to help him do that. So he's fulfilling his calling. He's being faithful. He's being responsible no matter what. Even though he hasn't figured out why he's in the place he's in, unjustly imprisoned. So verse 7 says, he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him, uh, why do you look so sad today? They said, we've each had a dream and there's no interpreter. So Joseph, Joseph knows all about dreams, right? Remember that? Like, I mean, he knows how to interpret his own dreams. So he says, do not interpretations belong to God? And they, they very much believed that at this time, especially. Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Verse 9 says the chief butler told his dream to Joseph. And here's his dream, okay? Behold, in my dream, a vine was before me. And in the vine were three branches it was though it budded, its blossoms shot forth and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place, your position and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. In other words, you're getting out of here soon. You're going to be right back to what you were doing. And then he says these words in verse 14. But remember me. Remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. Get me out of here. You ever said that to God? Get me out of here, please. I've been in this situation long enough. Please, God, remember me. For indeed, verse 15, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I have done nothing here that they should put me into prison. By the way, if you're not familiar with the story, not only was he sold into slavery by his brothers, into the land of Egypt, but while he was there doing a very, very good job, he gets accused of, of sexual harassment, okay, by Potiphar's wife, and falsely accused and thrown into prison. So a double whammy of injustice, and that's why he's saying, please, when you go back to the king, don't forget about me, and tell him what happened. Tell him I'm not supposed to be here. Plead my cause. Um, so verse 16 says, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation of the butler was good, he said to Joseph, in my dream, there were three white baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of your dream. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you. How would you like to give that interpretation to someone? How do you say that? To 
shall lift off his head from you and hang you, lift off your head and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. It's a pretty specific interpretation. So it came to pass on the third day, sure enough, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. He did. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. And that sad, sad verse, verse 23 of Genesis 40, yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot them, forgot him. This man, this butler that Joseph had been serving and tending to and checking on, making sure he's okay while Joseph was very not okay. He has an opportunity to get Joseph out of there, to intercede on his behalf, and he completely forgets. Wow. Two more years, Joseph sits there in that. It was hard enough being mistreated and sold as a slave. It was hard enough being accused by Potiphar's wife of something he didn't do. But to just be left and neglected and forgotten and abandoned by the person he had helped. You know, people pain, I just heard someone say this this past week. I heard a pastor say, people pain is the worst pain. And it's true, isn't it? You can get through just about any kind of physical pain so much better if you've got emotional support of a human in your life. But if you don't, people pain is the worst kind of human pain, the pain of disappointment. Talk about getting a PhD in character development. Spend some time being disappointed by people. And then you've got an opportunity. You and I will either react by being disappointed at the disappointing person, taking up an offense and letting that take root until it grows into something that cannot be rooted out of your heart except for a miracle. Or we can dig into this word and let the Spirit of God transform our heart in such a way that by a supernatural miracle, we can respond properly to disappointment. And here's one of the ways I have found it to, 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 to respond to the disappointment of people. When you point your finger at the person who's disappointed, disappointed you. I, re I remember, let me just tell you this. I'll never forget Henry Fuchsman when we had first started right here in this building. He stood right here. I'll never forget it. He said, he pointed his finger. He said, Dave and Faith will disappoint you. He repeated it like three times. Dave and Faith will disappoint you. And you're going to have to be okay with it. And what he could have said is because, you know, it goes both ways. Because we're all the same. We are all the same. And that has been a key in my life to responding to the disappointment of people is when I realize when I'm tempted to point my finger, you, I'll point at my husband, although he's, he's a wonderful man. Well, I'll point, you disappointed me. Very rarely happens. Thank God. Oh, I love that man. <laughs> Uh, but the minute I point my finger at someone in my mind and think that they disappointed me, 
One thing that's really helped me is I have three fingers pointing back at me. You've heard that adage before, right? When you point your finger at someone, there's three fingers pointing back at you. But one day it hit me what those three fingers represent. It's like a mantra. And here's what they represent. I do the same. I've done the same. And I'm capable of doing the same thing again. And if you can really believe that, and really take that to heart and realize and be super, I'm lately trying to practice being super, super honest with myself and look at those three fingers pointing back to me. I've done that. Yeah, I've not answered a text before. I do that. I do that. I've done that. Or I'm capable of doing that. I'm just as capable. I do the same. I've done the same. I'm capable of doing the same thing again. Disappointment. This is a scriptural principle because Romans 3.10 says, there's none righteous, no, not one. This is the answer. This is the Christian answer to religion, which are very different. They're worlds apart. They're planets apart. This is the Christian answer, the gospel answer to religion. Religion says, well, some people are better than others, and therefore God picks and chooses, and he has this ranking, this merit system, and he has his favorites. No, the gospel is so counter to that. The gospel says in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not a one, from the most robed and holy-looking person the vagabond. There's none righteous. It goes on to say in Romans 3 verse 11, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So that is one way that God is helping me and I believe can help us to handle the disappointment of people, people pain. I'm not talking about trauma and abuse, by the way. That's always the disclaimer. That's, that's, I shouldn't even have to say that. But just the general disappointing ways of people. If, you, if we can just remember, there's none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. I am just as capable of offending in that way. And if I don't think so, God will arrange it so I find out. And that's never fun. And that's never fun. But don't we find out, oh, I do the same. Yeah, I actually do. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, I'm capable of doing that. Three fingers pointing back to me. Romans 3.10 says, I'm just going to read a few more verses and then we'll get back to our story. Just on this note of people pain and responding to disappointment. Romans 3.10, or Hebrews 12.14, Hebrews 12.14 says, pursue peace with all people, yes, even those who disappoint you, and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, become affected by my bitterness, my bitter root, 
So we've got to treat our heart like a garden and tend it carefully, lest these roots of bitterness caused by being disappointed by someone should take root and spring up and choke out every fruitful thing God would want to do through your life. Here's a, a verse that has become dear to me that I'm really, it just, God brought this to me recently and I've been pondering this verse. It's Proverbs 19.11. Proverbs 19.11 says, the discretion, discretion means uh, careful observance. Uh, it's a healthy premeditation on what you're going to say and do and think. Okay, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. I've been meditating lately on that last part. I'm not good at it, like not even close to a PhD, more like in pre-K on this. <laughs> like I'm so aware of how weak and, and, and how much growth I have to do in this area. But it says his glory, a person's glory a person's honor is to overlook a transgression. So unless you live in a cave or on an island by yourself somewhere, every single day you and I have opportunities to overlook some kind of transgression, some offense, some disappointing behavior or word. We have an opportunity to make the choice to overlook it. And you know what? I've tried it. I succeeded one time. By God's grace, he's, he's, he's helping me grow in that. I want to grow in this. I want to get to that point where it's so easy to just, you know, I'm going to overlook that. I'm not going to stew about that. I'm just going to overlook that because it says your glory, your honor. God will honor you. He will he'll, he'll lift you up, so to speak. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll bless you. His peace will be with you if you make that choice to overlook a transgression. So that was just uh, some scriptures on this whole thought of disappointment. And can you imagine how utterly disappointed, that would be putting it so mildly, Joseph felt when this butler completely forgot about him. So it says in chapter 41, we move on to the next chapter, it says it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. Oh, Here's the king, the one who threw him in prison. Now, he has a dream. See, God knew. God had a plan. God had a plan all along. Just like we talked about last Sunday, God knew exactly what he was doing with Joseph. Verse 2 says, Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. And then seven other cows came up out of the river, ugly and gaunt. And they stood on the bank of the river, and verse 4 says, The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven five-looking, fine-looking, and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke, and then he went back to sleep and dreamed another dream. And in this dream, seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. And then seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke. And indeed, it was a dream. So it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. Why? Because he knew there was some kind of divine implication behind this dream. 
He called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, people who were supposed to be skilled in dream interpretation, and none of them could tell him what the dream meant. Verse 9 says, Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day. <laughs> Look, some of the people in your life who've disappointed you may never actually remember. It may never come to their mind how they faulted you. And in those two full years, Joseph had a choice every single day. I'm going to forgive that butler. I'm going to overlook his transgression. Because God has a higher purpose. God knows exactly what he's doing, and God's even using This is my opportunity to grow character. So I'm either going to sit here and rot in the corner of this prison and let that butler and his neglect have power over me to stop me from fulfilling God's purpose in my life. I'm either going to give him that much power by something he doesn't even know he did, or I'm going to make the choice. I'm going to make the choice. I'm going to step into God's power. Say, God, give me the power to forgive. Because I want to go on with you. We've got stuff. We've got stuff to do together, God. And, and I don't want to miss out. I don't want to be held back by this bitterness and this disappointment. So eventually, in this case, the butler remembered what he had done. He says, I remember my faults this day. Verse 10 says, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants, he, 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 says, uh, he says to Pharaoh, this is the butler talking in verse 10, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, we each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interp interpretation of his own dream. You know, the thing about this butler is he had also been thrown in prison unjustly. He should have understood how important it was to get Joseph out of there. He should have understood. But nope. Nope, he forgot doing his own thing, living his own life. So he tells about how this young Hebrew man, verse 12, uh, interpreted our dreams for us. And verse 13 says, it came, to, it came to pass just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office and he hanged him. So he tells Pharaoh, hey, there's this guy. I know a guy in prison. And he's really good. He can interpret your dream. So verse 14 is a pivotal verse. It says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. That word quickly is important because just when you think that you are going to be in your prison for the rest of your life, perhaps, or for years or for a very long time, just like that, God can bring you out. Just like that. We were in an eight-year prison of some really hard times as a family. And I honestly looked at the odds. I looked at the, the statistics and thought, we may never get out of here. This may be our story for the rest of our life. I mean, I, the odds were not in our favor. And in a day, just like that, just like that, we came out. God said, okay, it's time. You've learned what I had for you to learn here. Still got a lot to learn. He has other, he has, he knows how to grow us, how to educate us, how to grow us up. He knows how to keep us in the school of learning for as long as it takes 
he had, because he has a far better goal for you and me than we could ever have for ourselves. Whatever you think you want in life, I promise you, what God wants for you is infinitely better. Because it has to do with matters of eternity. Your spiritual well-being is his priority. He is infinitely more interested in your spiritual well-being than any kind of other well-being you think you need. Because he wants you. He'll do whatever it takes to have you forever. And so, just like that, Joseph was quickly brought out of prison. He interprets, Pharaoh tells him his dream. He goes through the whole entire thing again, the cows, the wheat. He tells it to Joseph. Joseph uh, tells him the meaning of the dream. Let's see where we pick that up. Um, uh, verse 28 says, um, verse 29, Joseph, he interprets the dream to Pharaoh. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. So Joseph says to Pharaoh, now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. Let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. So he basically lays out this fantastic economic plan to save the nation through the coming famine. So the advice, verse 37, was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a man as this, a man in whom is the spirit of God? It was obvious all of a sudden to everyone who... Who should take on this role to be in charge of this storing up of food? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. I like those two words, discerning and wise, because discernment and wisdom have absolutely nothing to do with intelligence and knowledge. And I really like intelligence and I like knowledge. Probably too much. They could be idols in my life. But discernment and wisdom is only something that comes to your spirit through God's spirit. You can think of it as a sixth sense, but it's, it's the spirit of God. Nothing to do with our five senses, our intellect. Discernment and wisdom is something that God gave to Joseph, and he was growing and developing that while he was in that prison think he needed discernment and wisdom to manage the people he was dealing with for two years in that place? You better believe it. Don't you, have you come to realize that some of our people problems cannot be solved with intelligence and knowledge? Strange that. There's this thing called wisdom that only comes from God. It has to do with how to say it, when to say it, 
why to say it, and so on. So, wisdom and knowledge, where am I? Uh, <clears throat> so the advice was good. Um, he, they, he puts Pharaoh in charge. Where are we? Um, verse, uh, see, I have verse 41. Pharaoh says, to, uh, verse 40, thank you. You shall be over my house. Here's his promotion. Here is his promotion. See, he just wanted to get out of prison. He just wanted to go back to his job. But the Bible, there's a verse in the New Testament that says, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you're able to even ask or think. God can do for you something that you are, it's so good beyond your, what you're even able to imagine. Joseph just wanted his job back. He just wanted to get out of his misery. God makes him second to the king and all the land of Egypt. I wonder what blessings you and I forfeit because we refuse to learn the lessons God has for us in our prison. He says, verse 41, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck, had him ride in the chariot, and they cried out before him, bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, in case you didn't remember, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Wow, that is power. Verse 46 says Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you know what that means? He was 17 when he was sold into slavery, 13 years of captivity, 13 years of, well, 13 years of training, we'll say, because part of that was the training in, in Potiphar's house, just learning to be faithful, just learning to walk in integrity and, and, and serve God and walk in obedience and, and resist temptation with God's help, just learning to be faithful. That was the first segment of his education. But then God had something more for him. So he allowed him to go into prison 13 years. And then he's finally promoted to a position he never could have imagined in his wildest dreams. And that was his dream, yes. Yes, he had the, the dream that he had had now finally come to fruition, and we'll talk more about that as we go into the story. So he was 30 years old, and in the seven plentiful years, verse 47, the ground brought forth abundantly, just like the dream, Pharaoh's dream. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt, laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he, until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph, and this is where I want to end on the, the significance of these two sons and their names. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, and this is why. For God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. Not that he forgot his father's house and his family. He forgot the trauma and the tragedy inflicted on him by his father's house. 
And this word toil originally in the Hebrew is actually sorrow and grief. This word Manasseh means, literally means making forgetful. That's what he's named his first son. For God has made me forget my sorrow and grief and everything I endured in my father's house. God's caused me to forget it. It's not that he could never recall it anymore. It's that he didn't carry it anymore as something that would hold him back in his heart. It was no longer a weight in his heart. God's made me forget. Then he had a second son, verse 52. The name of the second son he called Ephraim literally means fruitfulness. For God has caused me to be, listen to this, fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Are you in the land of affliction this morning? You ever been there? God wants to do two things for you. Number one, he wants to come into your life in such a way that he will help you forget the sorrow and the grief of your father's house. Whatever that may be, figuratively speaking, maybe literally, I don't know. God's healing power, he came to heal the human heart. He can help you forget the sorrow and grief of your past. Because until he does that in your life, you cannot be fruitful, even in the land of your affliction, especially in the land of your affliction. He wants you to be fruitful. He has fruit for you to bear in this life. So let's pray. I'd just like to take a minute. Let's search our hearts before God. Let his spirit speak to you. Father God, this morning, I want to lift up those here who can identify with Jacob, who would say, yep, I've been forgotten. Left to sit here, someone was supposed to rescue me, and they didn't. Father, I Pray for that person or, or, or persons that you would heal their heart in such a way that not only would there be a forgetting of that injustice, but a divine forgiveness that can only come through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father God, we need your healing touch on our lives and in our hearts. So we lift up our hearts to you this morning, and maybe you can do that if you'd like by just lifting your hands to the Lord as it 
as a way of just demonstrating, Father God, my life is open before you. My heart is, I open my heart to you. I've been carrying this pain, this disappointment. And I realize in doing so, I have put myself actually in my own prison. See, sometimes a prison is not actually where God put you, it's where you put you. By your own bitterness. Father God, this morning I want to be free. You are the only one that can bring me out and set me free. And so this morning I surrender to you all of that, all the pain, grief, and sorrow. I bring it to you. Jesus, I look to the cross and I say to you this morning, as the song we sang says, lead me to the cross where your blood poured out. Rid me of myself and fill me with your spirit so that I can be healed and whole and free and so that I can become the person you created me to be. I say yes to all of that this morning. If that's the you this morning, just tell him. Just tell him in your own words. There's no formula, no script. Just say, Father God, I need you. I've known about you. Maybe, maybe you've heard about him all your life. Maybe you've even gone to church all your life. God, I've heard about you all my life, but I've never known you. Like meeting someone in person for the first time. Maybe today is the day you meet God in person and realize maybe he's not who I thought he was. Father God, I want to get to know you. So would you come into my life today? I need you to save me. Not just from an eternity without you, but from myself and from my self-inflicted misery that has kept me in this prison. I repent of my sin of unforgiveness. I recognize that I am just as much in need of a Savior as anyone else. So I ask you, Jesus, to come into my life. Wash and cleanse me like that rain we heard about earlier. Whatever you did for me, that atoning sacrifice I've heard about on the cross, I take that personally. I do believe you resurrected physically for me, and that's what I want for myself. I want to identify with that. Brand new life today. A life in you, Jesus. Come and fill me by your spirit, I pray. Father, I thank you for your spirit here this morning. I thank you for healing. I thank you for the healing and mending and restoring of broken and wounded hearts this morning. I thank you for the conviction of the Holy Spirit that lets us know where and what and who we can forgive through your power. We can. We can. By your power, Holy Spirit. And for all these things, Father God, we thank you. We thank you. And we praise you. Jesus. You were the ultimate Joseph. Came out of the grave and you rose to a, to a new glorified person, bodily resurrection. 
Your word says in Philippians that you have been exalted to the highest place, the highest position of all authority and all power. And we worship you, Jesus. We worship you as God. And we thank you for being the Lord of our lives. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Amen.